If you are able, please stand for the reading of God's holy word this morning. Turn to your Bibles to Exodus chapter 14. Exodus chapter 14, we begin reading in verse 15. Yahweh said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am Yahweh when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of God who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and Yahweh drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, Yahweh in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, Let us free from before Israel, for Yahweh fights for them against the Egyptians. Then Yahweh said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, Yahweh threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen. Of all the hosts of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus Yahweh saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that Yahweh used against the Egyptians. So the people feared Yahweh, and they believed in Yahweh and in his servant Moses. Amen. May God bless the reading to our hearts and minds this morning. Please be seated. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. I pray that uh, at this time you'll make little of me and much of your word, that your truth would resonate in the minds and the hearts of the people, that it would bring about the awe that you are deserving of, the awe of who you are, the reality that you are God and you have chosen a relationship with human beings, with us who are so incredibly far apart from your perfect holiness, your perfection, your divinity. Use this scripture this day to bring about a, a humility in our hearts of, of our own selves and an exalting of the name and person of Christ Jesus. In Christ's name we pray, amen. 
Well, this morning's message is titled, How God Transforms Controlling Fear into Trusting Faith. I think it's probably a topic that all of us can relate to. Uh, It's one of those where we all deal with fear. We deal with it, some of it good, in godly ways, and sometimes we deal with it in unbiblical ways. I found it uh, fascinating that, uh, in fact, Rob Roy was teasing me before we got up how well um, God in his providence used this morning's Sunday school, which we dealt with uh, the issue of fear, to kind of tee up the ball, put it up on the tee so that when the the sermon comes, I mean, it's a clean swing, and it's driven far and, and deep, hopefully, into our hearts. Well, this morning... I'd like to allow Revelation to point out the, the, and describe the person, the enemy, that is, that desires us to, to fall under this controlling fear. And that is Satan himself. And in Revelation 12, 9, uh, Revelation speaks of, the, of Satan as being the deceiver, deceiver of the whole world. It's that concept of deception that we're going to hold on today because there's a connection between deception and controlling fear. In fact, self-deception is, is one of Satan's favorite things to bring about in, in our lives, and he brings that about through fear. We need to understand this connection or we at times can lack the ability to to be sanctified out of our fear, to be transformed into trusting faith. Last week, we learned that fear makes us believe and do things that we would never normally do, at least under an orderly situation. The situation gets Harried, it gets complicated, there's stress involved, all of a sudden fear or anxiety develops, and we think, or we believe you might say, and do things we would think we could never do. Well, this week we realize that fear also can cause us to distrust God. Something that we, we know we don't want to do, but yet we fall into when we allow fear, this controlling fear to, in fact, control us. We get to a place where fear makes us believe that the stability of what we have in our current situation, whatever that troubling situation is, how little stability we might have, you might say it this way, how little control we still have is better than trusting the full control that God has. We scratch, we, we claw, we grasp at straws to hold on to it because it's familiar. It feels like we can do something. And in fact, oftentimes we need to realize that it's God who is in control and Satan is using the fear of the stress that we are facing to cause us to be in bondage to that fear. It's a terrible cycle. And we need to, hope to learn what it looks like to get out of that cycle. So today, we will l- learn how God transforms controlling fear into trusting faith. Hopefully, by the end of this, we can see ways we can get sort of unstuck from this cycle of fear that sometimes controls us. 
If you'll take a, a look at your um, bulletin, and I'm going to ask most, if you don't normally look at it when I ask you to do that, today's a good day to, because there's a lot there, and I don't want to overwhelm you. I want to show you, I want to break down so you can see this ahead of time where we're going, so it doesn't, you don't look at this and go, oh gosh, this is too complicated. First off, the takeaway is grasping God's glorious power displayed in his work of Mercy out of justice. You're going to hear me refer that to, to that over and over again. Mercy out of justice transforms controlling fear into trusting faith. And in, in bullet point one, we're going to see judgment and mercy play out on the same stage. That's the takeaway. Let's just, just know that there's this theater, that, uh, this stage that God has before us, the, the parting of the Red Sea, and we're going to see both justice or judgment, in this case, and mercy played out. Secondly, on this same stage, there are actually two paths. And we're going to see that Moses is going to point out these two paths. And these two paths are identified in the passage, one by the wording of dry ground and the other by dry land. And if you get ahead of me right now and you go to your Bible, it will mess you up. Because every Bible translation translates it based on the immediate context of the physicality of water in soil versus a theological separation of the two words. And I want to give you that theological so you can see what Moses is doing by the inspiration of God through theology to show you uh, one represents judgment, one represents mercy. And he makes it very clear by using the two, two, two words differently. And then lastly, um, we have there the power displayed in judgment and mercy produces trusting faith. And we'll take a look at that. So it, it's... It's not, it looks like a lot of activity on there. It's actually just three main categories. And I pray that God will use this to bring clarity and not confusion. So with that, let's take a look at uh, bullet point one there. Judgment and mercy played out on the same stage. And we're going to be in uh, verses 15 to 18. It breaks down nice, nicely with mercy dealing with uh, verses 15 to 16. And then the uh, just judgment dealing with uh, 17 and 18. So let's take a look at this. Exodus 14, 15 to 16. Yahweh said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Now, Moses is the mediator. He is the advocate. He is the one that is supposed to go to God on the people's behalf, and he goes to the people on God's behalf, and he's this go-between. So what we see here is, is Moses is acting in his role of mediator, and he's up, when it says he cries to God, he's, he is appealing to God about the situation. But God deals with this differently. God says, enough. The time of prayer is over. It's now time for action. And it's not a rebuke. It's a directive, meaning that Sometimes we get stuck in this place where we overassess, we overpray, we are paralyzed in prayer. What if I prayed wrong? What if I didn't pray enough? What if I said the wrong words? And, and God is saying, listen, listen carefully. I'm giving you the wisdom. Now it's time to do. The last time God said, and, he, and he, the very next sentence within the same uh, uh, scripture, uh, verse 15, says, tell the people of Israel. Well, the last time he said that was at the beginning of the chapter, and when he said, tell them to turn around. We're going back to, see if I can remember the wording, hapi 
Heroth, I think I got it right. We're going back to that city, which meant mouth of caverns or mouth of wrath, I think was the more appropriate of the two. And they're thinking, are you crazy? We're going back? That's where the enemy's going. Well, that's the last thing he said to Moses is, tell him this. And now God says, stop with the prayers, Moses. It's time for point number two. This is the next directive. Tell them. And he says, tell the people of Israel to go forward. Well, forward to them is to the sea. We got no boat. Tell them to go forward. Just do what I have told you. Just have them do what I have told you to tell them to do. So it's interesting here. Now God says something in the Hebrew that you can't see in the English. Now he's, he's pointing out something to Moses. There is a word that you don't have in, in the ESV version or any of the other versions, and that is he uses the, the pronoun you. You singular. Not you all. And he sa- it's like he says, you, Moses. And he's getting right after Moses. This is what I need you to do. And he says, you, lift up your staff. Excuse me. Yeah, you, lift up your staff. In other words, when he, they're lifting up the staff, we have to be reminded that this staff represents the authority and power of God. So when he says, raise it up or lift it up, He's saying, exalt my power and authority. Make it visible that the people can see this is me doing the action. So he makes it very clear. And he, and, and he says, and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry, and on the ESV it says dry land, excuse me, dry ground. I'm going to use the theological dry land. It's, it's wonderful. It's right. You can use dry ground. I'm not saying that it's wrongly interpreted. I'm saying I want to demonstrate to you by using consistency of words in the English so you can follow the theology of what Moses is saying. So we look at this and we see that he's telling Moses to, to stretch out his hand over the sea and divide it to cause a parting of it that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry excuse me, on dry land. I want to show you something. In this particular uh, use of this word, the word is yabasha. Yabasha. And where we see this word first in, in the uh, Bible is way back on Genesis 1, 9 through 10. And remember, when, when the Israelites use words that should be, that, that words that are Unique or tied to a particular significant story, they'll use those same words in the current story so that you look back, your mind starts racing back, and you start putting the two parallels of the two stories together. Well, the first time we see this is in Genesis 1, 9 through 10. This is day three of creation. And listen to this. It says this, And God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land, you'll notice your ESV actually uses the word dry land, um, so I'm moving with the consistency of that. And let the dry land, the Yabashah, appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. Interesting, we're dealing with the crossing of the Red Sea. So we see some connection back there. And God saw that it was good. The idea in creation, what God is doing in the midst of creation, is he's taking... Out of the water comes this dry land. This dry land is a new and good thing that God has created. 
We recognize that. And he's going to populate the dry land with us. And we're going to have dominion over, the, over the, the, the dry land. And we're going to take on our role as image bearers, as king representatives on earth. And we're going to multiply is the idea. Well, when you see this now, what we should be thinking as those that align our thinking with the Israelites is this, there's something new going on here. There is a new and good work. Dry land is, is equated to new and good creative work by God. Keep that in your mind as we move forward. And the, so as we, we think about this in the context of the Red Sea crossing, we see that, of course, God's doing. We know from a Christian standpoint that God is doing a new and good work. You can think of this as he is taking the people out of physical bondage and he's bringing them into a place of physical salvation. Their own land is where they're headed. You could say it this way. They're moving from a foreign land where they're oppressed to to having their own land where they can be ruled over by Yahweh who loves them with a relationship of love and obedience. You could look at it as he's taking them as an individual people. They are the the large family that has descended from the person of Abraham, and he's moving them from a a family setting to a nation setting, and by the time they get into the kingdom, into this promised land, they're going to be in a kingdom. So God is moving them in, in that sense. So he's moving this to a new creation. Or you might say it this way. Remember, they've been 400 years not understanding their God, being having this synchronistic understanding, allowing the Egyptians' understanding of their false gods to infiltrate their thinking of who their gods, excuse me, who the God of their patriarchs is. And so they're confused. He is doing a work where he's going to to take them from a place of not knowing him. They're going to end up at Sinai where he's going to teach them all about himself through the giving of the law, and then he's going to move them into the land. So we have all of this new stuff going on. So we can see the consistency of when he's using, when Moses is using by way of inspiration this word for dry land, we can see its hyperlink, its connection back to the original creation. I do want to emphasize one thing, and that is, remember that Moses was ordered to stretch out his hand, raise up, and lift up the staff. It demonstrated God's authority and God's power. One of the first steps in transforming our controlling fear into trusting faith is to do that in a more metaphorical way. In other words, we're not going to go say, oh, this represents God's staff and raise it. We are called to exalt that which is God's authority and, the, and thus, his power in our lives. God's word is our authority. God's law is our authority. And the neat thing about it, and we saw it in the study today, um, in the Sunday school study, is that we can't do God's uh, uh, law on our own. We need a God who is present with us. We need a God who is giving us the grace we need, the power we need to live out the law. It's a picture of a need for a Savior. And in this situation, they have the person of Yahweh there. And we're going to see that he's there in the form of a pillar 
that has is both a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire. So we can understand here that, look, the practical application, the first step we need to do, if you're in fear, ask yourself, am I under the authority of God in my decision-making? In the midst of this trial, what does God's word have to say that I should be doing? Am I doing this or not? Because if I'm not doing this, if I'm not following what God has graciously given us as the written word of God, I can expect chaos. I can expect fear to grow out of chaos because I'm the one contributing to the chaos by not following his word. So we need to first exalt his authority in our lives, exalt his power by relying on the grace that God gives us through our relationship with Jesus Christ and live a life that exalts his authority and power. But we also see judgment in verses 17 and 18. Same stage and we see judgment says this, and behold, yours doesn't say behold, it says it in the, the and I don't think you, uh, any version you might grab has it, it says it in the um, Hebrew, and behold, and remember, behold is a way to slow down, say this is important, that's what he's doing by Moses saying this, and behold, and excuse me, this is actually God saying this, and behold, I will harden the hearts of, e- of the Egyptians, so that they shall go in after them, and I will get glory, in other words, honor praise, and most importantly, distinction. They will know who I am compared to who the false gods of Egypt are. We need to oftentimes know that distinction. We get this synchronistic, this, this allowing, this, yeah, the, probably the most common one I see is a nationalistic uh, faith that we have, Christians, where we allow our political beliefs to define who we are as Christians, or our political beliefs to somehow influence um, God and country is our motto, when it should be God alone as Savior. And praise be to God, we live in a free country. You hear the distinction there. God can't be combined with anything else. We need to make sure that we have a distinct understanding of who our God is. So we see here, he says this, And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all the hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know. What will they know? That I am Yahweh. I'm the one over creation. I am the self-existent one who has a, a covenant with Israel. When I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. He's going to get glory because he's going to bring judgment on them. He's going to demonstrate his power. God gets glory in the mercy he extends to us because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. And God gets glory in judgment. We have somewhat of a choice in that. I'm speaking from an earthly position. God calls each of us to repent and believe. That is our role in choosing. Do you want God to be getting glory in your life? by way of the mercy he demonstrates, by your trusting in him? Or do you choose to allow? Have you, have you somehow said, I don't want this Christian thing? And then thus, if you are not a Christian, he will get glory. It will be in your judgment. 
because he is made distinct in judgment. He has the authority and power, and he is also a just God who must remain just, who must remain in the context of who he is. He cannot be unjust. There is no sin that can go unpunished. You don't get a wink or a pass and think that, well, God will maybe be nice enough one day to me, and he'll just overlook my sin. It has to be paid for by a Savior, and that Savior is his Son. Well, I, we, now we understand that there's mercy and, and judgment happening on the same stage. The stage here is the Red Sea crossing. Well, now we look at point number two, and we see out of the path of judgment comes mercy. Again, out of the path of judgment comes mercy. If you're a note taker, I'm going to ask you to try and do more listening than note taking on this one. Because what God does in narrative is amazing. Over roughly, well, I'll just say the greatest percentage of the Bible is made up of narrative. Narrative is that which hits its mark in who we are. We as human beings are almost compelled. When someone tells a story, we get drawn in. We start making visual pictures in our mind as if we're a player in the midst of the story or at least empathizing or sympathizing or coming along beside the person in the story. That's what God is doing in this. And this is what I want you to see. As I walk you through this and give you greater understanding of what the Hebrews would have known by experiencing this in their language, I hope you can see that God uses the stories of the Old Testament, the stories of the first, the physical salvation, to help draw us in to, to understand the awe of God that gives us trace, trusting faith, and it destroys controlling power. So enjoy what God has given in this account to his Hebrew people and to us today as Christians. He's First off, he starts with a reminder of the agent of judgment and mercy. That person is the angel of Yahweh, the angel of God. We know that person as, I've explained it, preached on it multiple times, this is the second person of the Trinity. This is not a cool angel, a powerful angel, an archangel. This is the person of the Trinity. If, when you were listening today to Pastor Pete uh, in the, uh, our, our uh, scripture for adoration, you heard him read from Psalm 34. He refers them in Psalm 34. Yahweh, 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 the angel of Yahweh. That's God's way of saying they are one and the same. I am now giving you more specific of which person of the Trinity I am specifying here. Yahweh was with the people of Israel at the Red Sea crossing. And we will see that borne out here. He was with David. David wrote that psalm, Psalm 34, not because he had the Red Sea crossing as a little, in a literal sense, but David knew that the angel of Yahweh camps around or encamps around those that fear him, not under the power of controlling fear, but fear him, and he brings them through their tribulations, their troubles, their trials. So we start with a, a reminder of the agent of, ju of judgment and mercy. Exodus 14, 19 to 20. Then the angel of God, again the second person of the Trinity, Christ himself, who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them. 
look what he does here. He's going to parry this. This is a couplet. He's going to make sure, Moses is going to make sure that the, the, the pillar of cloud and smoke and the person of the angel of God are two separate, different entities. But we're going to see that, as we saw earlier in the burning bush, one is within the other. So they see burning, uh, a burning pillar or a cloud with lightning coming out of it. But you can know because he has told them that this is the person, of the, the second person of the Trinity. So let me read again. Then the angel of God, who was going before the hosts of Israel, moved and went behind them. The pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them. It's not like they're separate. Yahweh's inside. The, the person of Christ is inside in the cloud, the pillar of cloud. But they are, one's a, a, a manifestation that they can see. The power of this pillar, this fire, and this, this cloud that brings forth lightning. And know that that is the manifestation of the person of Christ. And he says, from before them and stood behind them. Coming between the host, the word could also be used, the camp of Egypt and the host of Israel or the camp of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night. With one camp, in other words, with one, I'm adding the word camp so you have an idea which one he's talking about. Without one camp coming near the other all night. There is no way the Egyptians are coming near that pillar of fire. They understand they have a storm god that they worship. And they don't, they understand the power of the storm god. They are terrified that this Yahweh, who is this manifested power in a, in a divine way, not the clouds going by and making storm, but in a pillar of fire and cloud and lightning, this God is different than their storm God. They are terrified, and thus they will not move forward to the camp of Israel. And so we have this protection of the, the camp of Israel by, this, by the angel of God. Yahweh, who saves, who protects the Israelites, is Yahweh, who saves and protects us. Be reminded of that. Do you have that imagery of that pillar, whether it's fire or cloud, in your mind? Or do you see baby Jesus in the manger and wrongly see a child that is vulnerable? You have the wrong understanding. You have the wrong picture of your God, and it's no wonder why you are under the authority of controlling fear, or at least the influence of, a, of controlling fear. We need to remind ourselves of the bigness, of the glory, of the distinction of our God. Amen. Judge, and, and, and point number two here, now we get to judgment takes the path of dry ground. You'll, you'll look on your, on your uh, outline, and it has uh, point B or C underneath this as judgment takes the path of dry ground and we, I've, I've got it separated in verses 21 and then we move again on to 23 and 28 so we can see it more clearly and then we'll deal with mercy takes the path of dry land which is dealt with in verses 22 to 29. So you're going to see me jump over 22. You now know why. Okay, so let's take a look at this. Jo uh, excuse me. Judgment takes the path of dry ground. We see in Exodus 14, 21. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and Yahweh drove the sea back by a strong east wind. Ding, 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 ding. East wind is a hyper, hyperlink backwards. 
The, the east wind, not the strong east wind, but the east wind is what brought the famine in, in, Gen excuse me, in uh, Genesis 41 into Egypt to begin with. So we, right there we go, oh, that's, that's a bad thing. The famine was a bad thing. Now, God used it to raise up Joseph, but famine is not good. That's not the way God designed it. But God takes what is not good, and he uses it for good. <clears throat> so that, that's one example of the word east wind. But we also have another. We have plague number eight, the locusts. Where do those little guys come from? Ah, it's the east wind that brings the locusts in. So we not only have east wind meaning some form of, of something bad, but we also have the idea of judgment against evil or against enemies. So that would be the first thinking, that would be the first uh, clues of, of, to the Hebrews that, oh, this isn't good. Something's wrong. Something's, God is bringing something punishing, bringing judgment into the picture. He goes on and he continues on. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and Yahweh dro drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry ground. This is the only time you're going to see the word dry ground in this particular passage. This is the second time the Bible has used this word. Easy hyperlink. Why is God using this the second time? Why didn't he use the same word for dry, uh, uh, dry land? Why did he change words? We, we now have the word uh, ha-rabah in there. So what's going on? Well, ha-rabah was first or last used. You could say it, it one and the same. In the understanding of Genesis 7, 17 to 22. What is Genesis 7? It's the flood. Watch. I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bibles or, turn or change up your phones and go back to Genesis 7, 17 to 22 and watch what the hyperlink, watch how consistent the hyperlink is. They would be, with the use of some of the words in this passage in Exodus, they would have a picture, a reminder of what went on in Genesis. So we have Genesis 17, excuse me, 7, 17 to 22. The flood continued 40 days on earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth. And the ark floated on the face of the waters, and the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. That word is kasah. It's the same word we're going to see in verse 28 of our passage, where the water is going to come back and cover the Egyptians. So we have another means bringing it back here. The waters prevailed above the mountains, again, covering them 15 cubits deep. And all, and this is key to us, and all the flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swam on the earth, and all mankind. Everything on, and it says there, dry land. We're using the theological translation of this. Everything on the dry ground in whose nostrils was the breath of life. There's judgment in the flood, and God is, he promised never to flood the whole earth, but God's going to bring the judgment, the waters of judgment into play here again. And God's going to bring those waters of judgment to one people and, and free another people from that, 
or not have them participate in that. And so we get an idea that there are two paths. Let's continue with Exodus 14, 23 to 28, and see this path of dry ground, this path of justice being brought out against the enemies of God, this path of judgment against the enemies of God. It says this in verse uh, 23 of chapter 14. The Egyptians pursued and went in, went in, in after them into the midst of the sea. Interesting. Again, every time you see sea, this is, this is so Old Testament. It's, there's almost fewer times when it talks about the sea where it doesn't mean this. Sea is the picture of chaos. No one controls the sea. It's terrifying is the picture, meaning that when they go out on the seas, they never know if they're going to return. They don't have the stability of the dry land, the pillars of the earth where man was, was called to rule and reign. The, the Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, that would be from 2 a.m. to 6 a.m., Yahweh, and this is where he puts Yahweh, this is Moses clarifying by way of the inspiration of God, Yahweh, in the pillar of fire and cloud, Look down on the Egyptian forces. The looking down is the, here is, is God, Yahweh, exalted above the little minions of Pharaoh. And he is about to bring this judgment on them. It's the superiority of Yahweh. What does he do? He looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptians' forces into panic. Now, the, it's been translated panic because panic has a a context of fear. The word, if very woodenly applied, the word for panic has more of a sense of a chaotic motion of confusion. The reason why I give you a little bit of distinction on that, I think the confusion starts, the motion of confusion, it's, it's when they start to experience that, that the, the panic starts to develop. I don't think the panic is there right away. You start to see this fear the very controlling fear that, Mo, excuse me, that Pharaoh wanted over the people when they saw and they raised their eyes and they see the huge army and they're in panic and they're accusing Moses of bringing them out to, the, to, to die out here. God is using that and God is using the sin of the Egyptians on them. He returns our own sin on our heads. We've seen that over and over again. And that is what our mighty God is doing. And we need to be reminded, when you are being persecuted, when you are going through a difficult time and somebody is unjustly attacking you, be reminded that if they do not repent, if they are enemies of God, ultimately, they will have their sin visited upon their heads. That is a means of us understanding and glorifying God. He just doesn't do it in some generic way. He brings, oh, you want to do, deal with my children this way? Stand by. That's how you're going to receive my wrath upon you. And so we, we get to see the, the amazing means of specificity that God uses in judgment against the enemies of God, the enemies of us. So he throws the Egyptian forces into panic. And it says clogging. I do not like the word clogging because to me, and this is my own beef, my own problem with it, clogging. When I think clogging, I think mud. Mud's clogging the wheels. The word isn't clogging. It was a good attempt at, I, I shouldn't say that because it sounds like the Bible didn't, didn't uh, 
interpret it correctly. Clogging is an okay way of seeing it, but clogging isn't a divine way of seeing what God is actually doing. The word here used for clogging is yasar. It means to change direction. It means that the wheels of these chariots aren't changing directions backwards or forward. Have you ever had, a, a, have you ever been on a bicycle or, a, or some, other, some type of a, a platform that has wheels and the wheels start to loosen and they start doing this and they're going different directions? You ever been pulled in a, in a wagon as a child that has something like that and now the wagon behind you is doing this? You're supposed to be pulling it forward and it's moving back and forth. Think about God divinely changing the directions. He is causing the chariots to swerve be, without explanation. Not clog. And all of a sudden they're slamming into the chariot next to them and slamming back the other way. And they're, getting, they're going, what's going on here? I'm just trying to go to them and, 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 and overcome them, and I can't get to them. I'm being turned around. I have lost control. God is using the controlling fear that was controlling his people to now bring about punishment on them. They don't have control of their weapons of war, and they know it goes beyond just clogged mud. Because look what they say. Clog mud, just drive those horses harder. I'll get through that clog mud. I'll make it stuck, but then I'm going to run in pursuit of that. No, they know something divine is happening here. Their chariot wheels, uh, wheels so, excuse me, he, so that it's not clogging. They were swerving that their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily, or the word is, could be interpreted with hardship. And the Egyptians said, this is what they figured out. They know who Yahweh is. Let us flee. Here we see the panic now. We got nothing in this fight because we have no control over it. Which is exactly what he told the Israelites. Watch. All you have to do is stand still and watch. I've got complete control. I'm the one taking action here. They say this. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel. For Yahweh fights for them against the Egyptians. They get it. Do we get that? Do we still try and control? When someone does something to us, are we looking for tit for tat? Are we looking to take control back and, and take and, and we bring our own form of justice? Or do we say and look at them and pity them and say, God's in control. May he have mercy on them. And if they, they are truly his enemy, then I know the results. God will not have mercy on them and God will bring judgment upon them. This is the, I, the mindset that we should have. He continues on in verse 26. Then Yahweh said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea. Again, we see the, a reminder, the visual reminder of, of the, the authority and power of Yahweh. That the water may come back. It's turning back. Moses keeps playing with this word, turn back. The, he, God says, I'm not going to take them, the Israelites down the coastal road because I know they'll come back. They'll turn back and they'll, go, they'll head to Egypt because they can't handle war at this time. I need to build in them trust. And then we see Yahweh says, hey, turn back. I know the, 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 the escape route's this way. Turn back and, and head towards them. And, and the, the Israelites must be thinking, is he gone nuts? Certainly the, the Egyptians, we know from last week's passage, thought, oh, we got him. And God's setting a trap. Oh, yeah, you got him? You got all of what God's got coming for you. Now, let's take a look at what God's got coming for these Egyptians. 
Stretch out your hand over the sea, and the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned, that same word again, to its normal course when the morning appeared. And so they can see it. Interesting. It's daybreak. God wants to make sure the Israelites know. If they can't see by way of the fire of the pillar, because they're too far down the path of the Red Sea, they can see by the breaking of dawn what is happening here, what God is doing. It's God's work of judgment upon them. And they continue on. And as the Egyptians fled into, excuse me, and as the Egyptians fled into it, is what your ESV says. In the Hebrew, it says, as the Egyptians fled from meeting it. They weren't fled, the Egyptians weren't fleeing into it. In a sense, they were. They were trying to flee from meeting it, God's judgment against them. Can you imagine that horse as, it, as those chariots are trying to get those horses to flee the, the, to the west? Because to the east, there's a problem. This is Yahweh bringing about his judgment. And they're trying to get out of the same crossing that they came in. And what are the horses doing? They're meeting the wave, the wall of water. They're driving into the wall of water. They are meeting God's judgment. And there is nothing that the Egyptians can do to try and steer control away from it. It's a picture of the sovereignty of God. And then he continues on. And, and I might say this before we move on. We can go all the way back to chapter 2. Remember, God's steering them into this wall of water. Pharaoh says in chapter 2, you throw all of the Egyptian infant boys into the, to the Nile, and this will stop. The, the, this population from growing and I will get authority over them and they will be in fear of me is, is what he's trying to do. He's trying to oppress them into not multiplying anymore and just follow his lead. I'm going to get rid of any of the potential later foot soldiers by way of getting rid of the, the male men or the male babies by way of water. They were told to throw the babies into the water and now God has thrown the Egyptians thrown Pharaoh, thrown his best horsemen, his best chariots into the water. You talk about specific judgment brought about by their own sinful hearts. They determined in some way the means by which God would judge them. What a scary thought for those who do not know Christ Jesus as their Savior. You continue on in verse 28. The waters returned back and covered in other words, drowned the chariots and the horsemen and all the hosts of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. Another way of saying this is not one of them escaped judgment. There is nobody born on the face of the earth that will reject Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior who will not face judgment. That's a heart-wrenching place. We have family members, all of us, we have loved ones, we have neighbors that we have grown uh, close to. We ache. We don't stand in superiority. We ache that these people would return to God, that they would return by way of repentance, acknowledging their sin, just as we were called to do and, in fact, did. We don't, we don't see ourselves as superior. We see ourselves as those that were blessed by the mercy 
We want the mercy to bring glory to God. It certainly is for our good. And then we see in verses uh, 22 and 29 in point C, mercy takes the path of dry land. Judgment is dry ground. Mercy is dry land. Let's look at verses 22 and 29. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry land, on Yabashah, the waters being a wall to them. Do you understand the picture of this? In that, those days, walls are not walls on houses. Like we're thinking when we, I think of a wall, I think, oh, that's a pretty good sized wall. It might be a wall around my house. No, no, these are city walls. City walls would go up tens and tens of feet, and they would be thick and wide. They were designed to be impenetrable so that the, the enemy could not come over them. The enemy could not get through them. These are the walls of protection that guard his children, the Israelites. These are the walls of protection against the waters of judgment that we have because of the work of Christ Jesus. It says this, And the people of Israel went into the midst of the, of the sea on dry land, and the waters, being, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. They stayed the course. They were on the path of dry Land. A beautiful work was being done in and through those people. It was a work of mercy, a work of salvation. Exodus 14:29. He ends this section towards the back end of it. But the people of Israel, in contrast to the to the Egyptians, walked on dry land, walked on Jabashah, through the sea, and the waters being a wall to them on their right and on their left. Jesus Christ ultimately took on the waters of judgment for you and me. He did that on our behalf. That's an amazing thing. That's a grace-filled statement. That's a mercy statement. We should stand in awe because of the ugliness we know of our own hearts. If not the ugliness of a variety of sins that rush into your mind, the ugliness of allowing sin to control us. God forbid. That, that this fear that, that Satan likes to use as the this deceiver of the whole world, he can use it by way, he can deceive us, he can use fear by way of controlling us and by way of making us distrust God. Let it never be because of the work of what Christ has done on our behalf. He is the one that took on the waters of death by way of the crucifixion. He died in our stead that we would have freedom, we would have victory. I find it fascinating. You know, there's a, 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 if you know anything about Presbyterianism, we go back and forth. The Presbyterians are the closest we have in theology, and yet we go back and forth over baptism. When you start to study what God has done in the Old Testament, I don't understand how you could hold on to sprinkling or infant baptism. Because listen to what happens here. If you think the waters of judgment is only metaphorical, oh, Nick, you're making a a neat, clever connection to what Christ did. He made it in the form of an ordinance. He made it in the form of a gift to us. That's a command. We are baptized into Christ when we 
join in the baptism that he took on in the waters of judgment. We willingly go under the water. We're not being sprinkled by the water. We're not getting the mist from the water. We go under the water, much like the Egyptians were covered by the water, much like the water covered the face of the earth in in Genesis 7 in in the great flood. We go under willingly because we want to submit to the lordship of God over us. We die to self. The, the baptism of a, is a picture of dying to self and being united with Christ, who ultimately, ours is an act of submission. His going under the waters of judgment is an act of his atoning work for us, an act of saving work. He did what we couldn't do, and we are now have a, his mercy extended to us. That's what's going up. And what happens? Do we stay underneath there? Anyone who's been baptized by me or Pastor Pete, do we hold you under and just... This is all about judgment, boys. No, you come up new. You come up dry land. You are a new and good work. You are the picture of the dry land coming up out of the sea originally in Genesis. You are the new work. You are the new creation in Christ Jesus We're in Christ Jesus because he did the saving work. We're in Christ Jesus because we are demonstrating our submission and our our adherence to him as our Savior. It's a beautiful picture. And lastly, we see the point number three, the power displayed in judgment and mercy produces trusting faith. Exodus 14, 30 to 31. Thus Yahweh saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. Israel experienced God's mercy. Continues on, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the shore, on the seashore. Israel saw the great power. Interesting, the word in Hebrew isn't actually power. The Hebrew is his great hand. The hand that that holds up the, the scepter of authority is pictured here, and it shows his great power. This is who our God is. Israel saw the great power that that Yahweh used against the Egyptians. Displayed in judgment. So the people, what'd they do? They feared. They feared Yahweh with reverential fear. Not fear of judgment. Not fear of of punishment. But fear of the might, the power, the authority. This is the God who has authority over all creation. Certainly he has authority over my trouble. Over my tribulation. And he continues lastly with this statement. And they believed. That idea of believing is not intellectual only. It is believing and putting in action that belief. It's faith. It's trusting faith. And they believed or trusted in Yahweh and in his servant Moses. So the call for us today is to throw off the shackles of controlling fear We need to recognize first and foremost, we need to live under the authority. We need to exalt the authority of God in our lives. And we need to marvel at God's glorious power. Whether we marvel at it in the physical salvation of Israel, or we marvel at it even the higher standard, the the higher manifestation of it, I'll say it that way, Marvel at the glory and power of what Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank you. I pray, Heavenly Father, that the imagery that each had 
as, this, as the narrative was brought before them by the very words that you gave Moses to speak and write down, that that caused imagery in their mind, that in the midst of the trial, they will have those images to come alongside the truth of your word and who you are, and it will defeat all controlling fear in the people, in me, my own self. I struggle with anxiety. I pray that you use these truths to conquer my own anxious heart, that I and the people here with me, my brothers and sisters, will demonstrate trusting faith, that we will know by way of experiencing the freedom you offer us. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen.